Well, good morning, and thank you for coming to chapel today. Let me begin my chapel message the way most chapel speakers begin, with words of thanks, right? Thank you, Dr. Moeller, Provost Aiken, Dean Pierre, and the administration for the invitation to speak in chapel. Thank you to my family for simply being awesome. And thank you, a special thank you to the students who are here attending chapel this morning. Thank you to you, okay? Because I recognize it's the end of the semester. (laughs) And many people are not here today because they've already received their chapel credits. Let's just be real about this. Uh, This means that there are two types of students that are here this morning. The first group of students simply loves chapel. They love chapel speakers. They love chapel singing. And they just love, they have perfect attendance this semester. And to that group of students, I would say, samesies. (laughs) The other second group of students attending the very last chapels of the semester are the students who have to attend chapels in order to avoid punishment. And to you, I would say, samesies. Um, uh, Many blessings have come into my life through assignments. That's just a sentence that's true. Many blessings have come into my life through assignments. And I'm praying that this assigned chapel would be a blessing to you. God has brought you to our school and to this place. And I hope you have faith this morning to believe that God has brought you to this chapel to hear from him this morning. This is a weird chapel for many reasons, but... Perhaps because the guy who usually does music is now preaching. Can we just admit how awkward that is, that someone moved from the piano to the pulpit? There's an old joke that says the only thing worse than singers who preach are preachers who sing. (laughs) So let me just say how odd it would be How odd it would be if we saw our president, Dr. Moeller, walk up onto our platform, strap on an acoustic guitar, and say, if that ever happens, you have my permission to leave your chapel seats and go and seek shelter. That's the apocalypse. That, I don't know if that's one of the seven bowls from Revelation or one of the three woes. I'm just saying, whoa. That would be something, wouldn't it? So here's my point. It's tempting to ignore a music professor in the pulpit, but I hope that you listen to sermons because of whose word is being preached, right? This morning, I've got God's word in my hands. I've got God's spirit in my heart, and I've got fire in my bones this morning, if I can just be honest. I've got a word for us this morning, and that word is found in Psalm 126. Open your copies of God's word to Psalm 126. If you didn't bring your Bible to chapel this morning, I don't know what school you think you go to. This is a Bible place. We love the word here. I know as many of you use your smartphones in chapel to um, find passages of scripture. So let me just encourage you, flip the smartphone on, make like an Old Testament scribe, and scroll Scroll, please, to Psalm 126. I'm going to read the passage and then pray for us this morning. Six verses for us here in Psalm 126. 
A song of ascent. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us. Your mercies are new every morning. So we pray that you would pour fresh mercy upon us this morning. You are the light of all who know you, the joy of all who love you. You are the strength of all who serve you. So fill our minds with your light and our hearts with your joy. Fill our lives with your strength so that we can bear witness to your great kingdom for your glory and our good. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. We're going to examine Psalm 126 using three questions. Three questions to try to help us get our arms around these six verses. The first question is, when? That's a question that will help us provide some context to the psalm. The second question asks, what? does this psalm mean? That's going to help us get some interpretation. And a third question asks, provides some application, what does this mean for us? All right, let's begin with this first question, when? Notice that the first word in our psalm this morning is the word when. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. You have to know that commentators disagree about the specific time and occasion that this psalm refers to. In his book, The Songs of Ascent, David Mitchell argues that King David collected Psalm 126 along with many, all these other psalms of ascent, and David put them together for the dedication of the temple. Other commentators claim that Psalm 126 was written much later. Uh, Bruce Waltke, his book is called How to Read and Understand the Psalms, he suggests Psalm 126 was written after the exile because he sees a clear, clear references to the exile in this psalm. Verse 1, the older uh, translations interpret verse 1 as saying, when the Lord brought back the captivity, perhaps that's what your translation says. Newer translations use the phrase, rendered the Hebrew here, restored the fortunes of Zion. And this reflects some disagreement among commentators and translators. There's tension among the commentators. There's even tension inside the texts. We're trying to answer this when question, but we feel a disorienting chronology as we look at our text. The song begins with words of praise describing how God has restored the fortunes of Zion. The psalm describes joy, celebration, Mouths filled with laughter, tongues with shouts of praise, nations rising up with testimonies of the great things that God has done so far so good. Or, as Old Testament musicians would say, show far, show good. <laughs> but then feel, you, you knew that was coming, right? Okay. 
But then feel the disorientation that we feel in verses four through six, because there's a turn there that's disorienting. Even though verses one, even though verse one described how the Lord restored Zion's fortunes past tense, verse four, present tense, cries to the Lord to restore our fortunes in the future. Now, if I was working in the writing center, well, I see Dr. Byler here this morning. If I was working in Southern or Boyce College's writing center and somebody turned in this psalm as a sample, I'm, I might pull out a red marker. I might edit it and write across the top, disorienting, this suffers from chronological confusions. To my editorial brain, I think the psalm should start in verse 4. Doesn't it make a little bit more sense? We should start with, Lord, please restore our fortunes, and then end the psalm with, thank you for restoring our fortunes. That seems to be the order that makes sense to my brain, to my songwriter sensibilities. And there are many psalms that are arranged that way. Psalm 22 is arranged. It begins with a prayer for a rescue and then ends with a celebration of the rescue that God has given. Psalm 69, same, opens with a prayer. God, please rescue me. Ends with a celebration. You have rescued me. But this psalm has that order switched. Spoiler, several psalms have that supposed order switched. God has restored our fortunes, and we pray that he would restore our fortunes. The psalm begins with praise and ends with a prayer. The chronology on this is disorienting. When are we talking about? It feels like if we really want to understand the psalm, we need to dig further. Let's move to our second question. What does the psalm mean? Maybe we can get some clarity as we consider this. Begin in verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Here the psalm refers to the entire nation of Israel, to all of God's people, by referring to its capital. In poetry, this is called metonym. Metonym means you refer to the whole by naming a part. So notice here that by naming Zion, Instead of the political capital of Jerusalem, we get a little clue here. The psalmist seems to be emphasizing the spiritual nature of God's nation, the covenantal nature of what's happening here. Moving on to the rest of verse 1, we see this phrase, we were like those who dream. When God restored his people's fortunes, the people felt like they were dreaming. Does that indicate a sense of disbelief, of profound wonder? Some commentators uh, think that maybe this dream language is a clue that the psalmist might be imagining a, a, a future restoration. Whatever it indicates, we see the relief of verse 1 overflow into joy in verse 2. Look at the emotional language get turned up. Then, it says, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. In his commentary on this passage, Alan Ross says that the words translated laughter and joy here are victory shouts made in war. It is identified, he writes with, and I'm quoting here, the sound made by flicking the tongue from side to side in the mouth, shrieking or crying out as loud as possible. Allow me to demonstrate. Nope. It's an exuberant 
joy. It's a joy of people who have arrived. If you've read much Augustine, you know this is one of his favorite metaphors. In his sermon on this passage, Augustine writes, if travelers rejoice in each other's company along the way, what joy they will obtain in their home country. God's people have been delivered and they are laughing and shouting with joy. And we see this joy not only from God's people, we see the joy among the nations, a great missions tie here. Look at the end of verse 2. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Now that's not a testimony of repentance. The nations aren't turning from sin by faith to a saving knowledge of God. That's not what we're seeing. Instead, the nations simply saw something happen that seemed impossible. The nations recognize something supernatural is at work here. And in verse 3, God's people agree. The Lord has done great things for us. The nation said the Lord has done great things for them. The people say, oh, the Lord has done great things for us. And this emotional response, we are glad. Alan Ross, the commentator of the flicking tongue, uh, suggests that the English word glad there is, quote, far too weak for the Hebrew concept. So to summarize what we've seen so far, the first three verses in Psalm 126 represent exuberant, joyous praise as God's people recognize God has restored their fortunes. People who thought they were losing discover they are winning. It seems like a dream, but it's a dream the nations can see and it fills God's people with gladness. Now in verse four, we get a turn. We get a turn as the praise turns to prayer. From our perspective, the psalm makes an unexpected jump here. We're not given any indication of a change, no description of circumstances that may have arisen between the praise and gladness of verse 3 and the prayer and petition of verse 4. We just get a zag, a turn. Look with me at verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. To understand this metaphor, it helps to understand the topography and climate of the Middle East. And some of you uh, farm people are going to understand this a lot better than the city folk. So, these verses describe during arid seasons, riverbeds in the wilderness become dry but during a rainy season, those same beds fill with water as torrents rush down off of mountains and irrigate plants and fill those areas with life. This prayer in verse 4 asks God, God, take our circumstances. They look so dry, like a dry riverbed, and pour out a rainy season of goodness and grace, kindness and blessing on your people. Now, we're not finished with this farming language. Verse 5 says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. This profound biblical truth is seen in the New Testament as well. Jesus draws upon this picture of sowing and reaping in Matthew 13. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, that what a man sows, he also reaps. It's, and again, difficult for city people to understand farming metaphors, but I think you can follow this logic here. 
consider two laws of the harvest. You reap later than you sow, and you reap more than you sow. You reap later than you sow, and you reap more than you sow. Watch for those laws in these next verses. But notice how verse 6 not only restates kind of verse 5, but he elaborates on it. The psalmist seems to be worried that we're not going to believe what he wrote in verse 5. So he kind of repeats himself like he's taken a pink highlighter marker so we won't miss it. Verse 5 says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Verse 6 says, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Remember our two laws of the harvest. We reap later than we sow. Psalm 126 describes a day of sowing, going out with a pouch of seeds around your shoulder and tears in your eyes. At the end of a day of sowing, there's no reaping at all. There's just an empty pouch and ruined mascara. Not all of the illustrations need to be masculine. Tears, friends, tears. Farming means waiting. Waiting. On another day, a later day, the harvest will come. We reap later than we sow. Law number two says we reap more than we sow. The day of harvest will not have a seed pouch around one shoulder, but there will be armfuls, cartfuls of wheat, sheaves of wheat. That day will not have tears in our eyes, but joy in our shouting mouths. We will reap more than we sow. All right. So question three, we're going to be talking about how, how does this feel? How does it feel to be restored and need restoration? How does it feel to be praising and praying? How does it feel to be winning and waiting? In a word, it feels, we've said it several times here, disorienting. It feels disorienting. Let's consider our third question here. What does this mean for us? I find three implications for us here in the psalm. Three implications for us and by way of application. The first implication is get perspective. The second implication is get agile. And the third implication is get busy. Let's start with this first implication. Get perspective. Get perspective. Don't get tricked. Get perspective. As we read this text and we consider, when was this psalm written? When, what's, the, what's the context here? It seems to me that this could have been written at almost any moment in Old Testament history. Maybe that's one of the reasons it's so confusing. It seems to fit a lot of moments. God's people often celebrated some redemption and longed for some greater, more complete, more full redemption. Adam and Eve could have sung this psalm as they left the garden. They could praise God for clothing them with the skins of an animal substitute, and they could pray with tears that he would fulfill his Genesis 3.15 promise. They could be glad God had done great things for them by graciously allowing them to live, graciously having an animal die in their place, graciously giving them a promise. They could be glad and they could pray with tears that God would restore their fortunes. 
Moses and the Israelites could have sung Psalm 126. As they crossed the Red Sea, their mouths were filled with shouts of joy as the Lord restored their fortunes, rescuing them from slavery, throwing the horse and the rider into the sea. They were glad and they could pray with tears, asking that God would restore them to the promised land. Joshua and Caleb could have prayed Psalm 126. God brought them through the Jordan River. Their mouths would have been filled with shouts of joy as the walls of Jericho fell. As God brought them out of wilderness and into the promised land, they could have prayed both halves of Psalm 126, asking God to restore their fortunes as they fought against pagan nations day after day during that conquest. After the conquest, the judges could have sung Psalm 126. Their mouths would have been filled with joy as God delivered them time and again from the Philistines and other pagan nations. And they would have prayed this psalm with tears in their eyes, asking God to restore their fortunes as they waited and asked for a king. When God gave Israel a king, they could have prayed this psalm. They must have felt like those in a dream. They could have prayed this psalm with tears in their eyes, asking God to restore their fortunes when they realized King Saul was not the king they really needed. At the coronation of David, the coronation of Solomon, the people of Israel could have prayed Psalm 126. They were like those who dreamed, their mouths filled with shouts of joy as Solomon comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and the sound that says, split the earth. Their mouths were filled with shouts of joy. And as the monarchy of David and Solomon took darker twists and turns, God's people would have prayed with tears in their eyes for God to restore their fortunes. Mordecai and Esther, we got a lot of these, would have been thankful when God delivered the Israelites from the evil plans of Haman. It would have seemed like they were in a dream, mouths filled with shouts of joy. And they could have prayed both halves of this psalm, asking God with tears to restore their fortunes by returning them to the promised land. Certainly when the Lord did return the people back to the promised land after the exile, they could have sung Psalm 126, so fitting. They would have felt like they were dreaming. They might have seen the new temple being built and celebrated with mouths filled with laughter and shouts of joy as the nations looked on. But then as you remember that story, people who saw the new temple also had tears in their eyes. It didn't seem as nice as the old one. All of Psalm 126, disorientingly true for all of these saints. It's a reality for us in the New Testament as New Testament believers as well, isn't it? God has delivered us, amen? God has sent his son. The Lord Jesus lived a perfect life, died for our sins, rose from the dead, defeating sin and death forever. The grave is empty, sins are paid for, hell is defeated, heaven is open. We are like those in a dream. Our mouths filled with laughter, our tongues with shouts of joy because of what Christ has accomplished at his first coming. Because we live after the first coming of Jesus Christ, we're winning and because we live before the second coming of Jesus Christ, we're waiting, praying for his return with tears in our eyes. We can certainly pray Psalm 126. Tears in our eyes. Let's, let's talk about our eyes for a moment here. 
this is my metaphor here on don't get tricked. Don't get tricked. What do I mean? In photography, there's a trick called forced perspective. Forced perspective. Forced perspective is the camera trick that forces viewers to look down a single lens, single camera lens, and so that things that are close to the camera appear large, things that are far away from the camera appear small. Using forced perspective, you can trick people into thinking that you are holding up the sun with your hand. With a movie camera, you can trick people into thinking that Gandalf was bigger than Frodo because they put the actor Sir Ian McKellen close to the camera and they put the actor Elijah Wood further back from the camera. It was a trick. It's a fun trick. This camera trick doesn't work in real life because you have two eyes. The trick works because you've got a single lens that you're forced to look down. When you see the world with two eyes, you don't get tricked. You have perspective. That's the word, perspective. Because God has given us left and right eyes, we're not tricked into thinking that things that are closer to us are bigger than things that are far away. We have perspective. Psalm 126 helps us not get tricked. Psalm 126 gives us two eyes to see the world. We can see the world through the eye of God's restoration. We can see the world through the lens of the first coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has come into the world, friends. His perfect life lived for us. I know I said it before. I don't mind saying it again. His death in our place, his resurrection from the dead have achieved salvation for us. It is finished. The kingdom has been inaugurated. The penalty of sin is gone. The power of sin is gone. The grave is empty. We're winning. We are like those in a dream. And through our other eye, we can see the world through the lens of God's future promise. We're waiting. For New Testament believers, this means we can see the world through the lens of the second coming. Jesus Christ is coming again. He's coming to judge the world and sin. He's coming to throw death and Hades, throw, I love the verb, throw death and Hades into the lake of fire. They're not going willingly. It doesn't matter what their will is. Thrown into a lake of fire. He's coming to make everything sad become untrue. The penalty of sin and the power of sin are already gone. When Jesus returns, the presence of sin is going to be gone as well. Psalm 126 helps us not get tricked. In systematic theology, we call this inaugurated eschatology. We see it most clearly in the New Testament realities we've been talking about, but we can see it here in Psalm 126. God has restored our fortunes, and we pray that he would restore our fortunes. Don't get tricked, get perspective. Second implication here is get agile. Get agile. Don't be fragile, get agile. The Christian ministry is an obstacle course. The entire Christian life is an obstacle course. And here I'm thinking about stuff like parkour. Here I'm thinking about like American ninja warrior sorts of things. 
This fallen, treacherous world is filled with twists and turns, rises and falls, hills and valleys, dips and bumps. And to successfully navigate this treacherous world, we got to be agile. Psalms like Psalm 126 really help us. The church father Ambrose said that the Psalms are the gymnasium of the soul. The Psalms are the rec center for your faith. Ambrose recommends the Psalms to help stretch and strengthen our faith in this difficult world. Because of some, some believers, because of their personalities or backgrounds, some believers emotionally gravitate towards the brighter truths we see in verses one through three. They're optimists, enthusiasts, experts at celebration. Their mouths are often and easily filled with laughter and joyous shouts. Other believers gravitate towards the darker emotional language we see in verses four through six. They see the ugliness and brokenness in our world and their eyes filled with tears. Which response is more Christian? Well, the Christian ministry and the Christian life need you to be great at both. You've got to be great at both. Christian ministry, Christian living require agility, the ability to move fluidly through twists and turns, rises and falls, hills and valleys, dips and bumps. The Apostle Paul describes this agility. He says Christian ministers are, 2 Corinthians 6, sorrowful, verses four, Psalm 126, 4 through 6, and always rejoicing, verses 1 through 3, both. The Lord Jesus describes ministry in Matthew 11 as dancing for pipe players and mourning with dirge singers. Agility. Jesus calls us to lose your life so you can find it. A agility. What does it take to be agile? Friends, agility requires us to have a strong core. A strong core. If we want to be ready for what is ahead, in this twisty world, let me encourage you, strengthen your core. What's coming next for the church? What new challenges are ahead? I have no idea. I'm off of my notes right now. Some of you are like, pray, pray, pray. It's all right. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember the 2010s. And... Um, there were, some of you aren't, it's fine. But there were many churches who would do this thing called Vision 2020. Several churches that I was familiar with would do a thing called Vision 2020. And the idea was, it's a great metaphor, right? What a great pun. 2020 vision, the year 2020. We want to get ready for what the Lord's bringing in 2020. And so we're going to do this fundraising. We're going to do this building. We're going to update the pews. We're going to Vision 2020. And then... The real 2020 came, and no one saw it coming. What a humbling thing for us. If the Lord wills, we'll do this. If the Lord wills, we'll do that. What, will the future, what is the future going to bring? Don't pretend you know, but here's what I do know. We need to strengthen our core. 
We need to strengthen our core. Agility does not mean conformity. The church does not need a gelatinous, spineless adaptability that conforms and contorts and assimilates to the shifting winds of this changing world. Far from it. But I fear sometimes we confuse strength with rigidity. The church doesn't need a tough exterior shell that appears strong but breaks at unexpected fault lines. Or the church doesn't need callous skin that cracks and bleeds. Christian believers, Christian churches need a strong core that can power through, that can flex through the difficulties and twists through this treacherous world. May the Lord help us deliver agility in a world that pushes us towards fragility. This world is failing and fading. This world is shifting and changing. And we need to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus, the one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, related to this is our third and final point here. Get busy. Get busy. Don't get cynical. Get busy. Friends, the cultural mood is always shifting. Sometimes the world is more optimistic. Sometimes the world is more pessimistic. Optimism flows. Things are going well. Stock market up. Good government, good policies are in place. Pessimism increases when the stock market is down, jobs are lost. Dysfunction, poor policies shape our world. Let me encourage you with a single word that's really helpful. Unsubscribe. Unsubscribe. It's my favorite word to ever send on an email. You're just like, unsubscribe. And you're just like, I'm free. I'm free. Unsubscribe your heart from the rising and falling emotional whims of this world. They are blowing everywhere. Please don't chase approval from broken people. Please don't chase popularity from a broken world. Marcus Aurelius says, fame in a world like this is worthless. And, and I agree with him, but for different reasons than, than he would have gone to. Here, here's the difference. Friends, there is a world that is not worthless. There is a kingdom that cannot be shaken that we are receiving. It's a city of the living God. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. That's Hebrews 12 that we had read for us earlier today. And that's where we're coming to. So, because there's a world that's not worthless, a kingdom that is real and meaningful, let's get busy. Let's get to work. Look at the amazing example we see in Psalm 126. Now, some of you grew up in churches with worship services and youth groups that functioned like pep rallies for Christianity. Uh, there were no real sad songs or times of lament or grief. Worship services moved from celebratory to exuberant, very comfortable in the first three verses of Psalm 126. And I, I want to say those verses are true. That, that's real. There are many great reasons for Christians to celebrate. But the prevailing mood among many of the Christians that I talked to was more pessimistic. Deconstruction is kind of the mood of the moment right now as people focus on the brokenness in our churches, the brokenness in our world, the brokenness in our lives. To my more pessimistic friends, I would say Psalm 126 is here for you, for us. There are tears and weeping in this psalm 
But let me encourage all of us to unsubscribe from the rising and falling cultural whims and moods of our day and to get to work. Cynicism is not a fruit of the Spirit. So notice how this psalm, with all of its prayers, all of its tears, all of its shouting, is working is working, preoccupied with sowing, working for the kingdom, planting genuine kingdom seed in the ground. Don't get cynical, get busy. Don't let sadness or brokenness or lament stop you from serving the Lord who has called us to go out weeping and bearing the seed for sowing. Don't follow one of the commands without the other, both. A final word of encouragement here, a final illustration for people who feel disoriented. That's been my emotional response in Psalm 126, disorientation. That's my response in looking at our disorienting world. How can we be reoriented? Well, I think there's a really encouraging clue inside the word orientation. Ever thought about that word? Inside the word orientation, is the word orient, which means east. Okay, so think about it this way. Disorientation is a picture of sailors lost in the middle of the night, in the middle of the ocean. Imagine that we are all on some enormous boat sailing together, and in the middle of the ocean, cloudy, dark, stormy, winds, waves tossed and turned The winds and the storm have tossed us up and down, back and forth, twists and turns, rises and falls, dips and bumps. Which way should we go? Which way should we turn? What is the way forward? When we're disoriented, we don't know where to go. We don't know where to turn because we've lost our sense of direction. We're disoriented. Reorientation is a beautiful picture. Imagine the darkness of that lost night at sea when all of the sudden we see the sunrise. Now we know which direction east is. We have been reoriented. We know what direction to sail. We now have our bearings because we know where east is. We know where to turn. We know where to go. We have been reoriented. Now following this illustration... Let me remind you about a particular sunrise because it was a dark night on that good Friday. Satan and the demons celebrating, Pharisees, Sadducees high-fiving. The disciples had been through twists and turns, dips and bumps. They were disoriented. But that Easter morning, friends, the sun rose. Both spellings. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Oh, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Weeping may last for that night. Weeping lasted that whole night. Joy came in that morning. And suddenly people who were lost knew which direction to go. Friends, we're waiting for another sunrise. We're waiting for the second appearing, the second coming of Christ. Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight when those clouds are rolled back like a scroll. But because we live after Christ's first coming, we know what direction east is. We know where to turn. 
we know where to go. We have been reoriented. So let's go. Let's go up, ascending Mount Zion with a psalm of ascent, with praise in our hearts, laughter and shouts in our mouths. Let's go through the twists and turns, rises and falls, hills and valleys, dips and bumps of this treacherous world with the faithful agility that comes from following Jesus Christ. Let's go to Mount Zion, the city of God, with tears in our eyes, seed in our busy hands, eagerly working, for the night is coming when no man shall work again, eagerly working for Christ and his kingdom. Let's go. Pray with me. Teach us, Lord, what it means to be faithful to you. You have restored our fortunes. Give us wisdom to perceive your work in our lives and in our world. And we pray that you would restore our fortunes. Give us diligence to seek you, patience to wait for you, eyes to behold you, a heart to meditate upon you, and a life to proclaim you. Through the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray these things. Amen.